Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, everyone. If you could take your seats. It's a lovely buzz in the room. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the London School of Economics and Political Science. My name is Minou Shafiq, and I am the director of LSE, and I am delighted to introduce the inaugural annual social policy lecture. This annual lecture highlights the contributions of social policy to research and to the study of the core and pressing social issues across the world, supported by outstanding research. Social policy is relevant to all of our lives, as my predecessor, William Beveridge, used to say, from cradle to grave. And this lecture has been established to not only showcase some of the high-quality research from eminent scholars working on important social policy issues, but it's also an opportunity for our students to further enhance their education and an opportunity for the department to engage directly with the wider public. Now, LSE's social policy department is the oldest such department in the UK still in operation. Some people might say that social policy was invented here. From its foundation in 1912, it's been at the forefront of research on issues such as poverty and inequality and the provision of welfare. It had an early focus on the nascent UK welfare state and many of the foundations of the UK welfare state were first thought of at the LSE. And it's also been a place that's developed practical policy solutions to improve social welfare as well as the training of those who go on to be practitioners. The department has always had at its heart the complementarity between teaching and research. And even while the geographical scope of its range of interests has expanded, that has remained core to its mission. Now, the quality of the department's research was, uh, and, and impact was recognized in the recent research excellence framework, which is a UK government exercise which evaluates the quality of research at universities across the UK. And our own social policy department received top scores nationally and was the number one department in the country. So it seems fitting that this new annual lecture, which showcases research excellence, uh, should have a very fine first speaker to join us to get things off in the right spirit. So it's my great pleasure to welcome Professor Leslie McCall to the LSE. She is the Presidential Professor of Political Science and Sociology at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and the Associate Director of the Stone Center on Socioeconomic Inequality. Professor McCall studies public opinion about inequality, opportunity, and related economic and policy issues. Things like trends in earnings and family income and inequality, and the patterns of intersectional inequality as well. She's the author of the book, The Undeserving Rich, American Beliefs About Inequality, Opportunity, and Redistribution. Professor McCall will be speaking tonight about how people understand inequality and attempt to address it. 
in her lecture entitled The Multidimensional Politics of Inequality, she will critically examine common assumptions about how Americans think about inequality and related policies to reduce inequality. She'll use a wide range of data sources and methodological approaches and illustrate how public views in the United States over time and in a comparative context have evolved before also suggesting a way that public views of inequality are rooted in desires for substantive, substantive economic and educational opportunities. Following the lecture, we will have a period of discussion which will be chaired by our social policy head of department, Lucinda Platt, and then there'll be a reception where I hopefully the conversation, the good conversation, can continue. So I invite Professor McCall to the podium and join me in welcoming her to hear her talk. Thank you so much. Uh, it was a great honor to have the director of LSE, Professor Manoush Rafiq, to introduce, uh, to introduce me and to be here to welcome all of you to this lecture. Uh, I also want to extend my thanks to Professor Platt uh, for the invitation and to members of the Department of Social Policy uh, who have uh, introduced this annual lecture um, on social policy. And uh, a deep um, uh, uh, gratitude to Maria Schlegel, actually, who has done so much work to put this event together. Um, I don't see her right now, but I just want to uh, offer my thanks to her as well. Um, so let me uh, jump right in. Uh, I hope to be able to have a substantial amount of time for uh, a question and answer and a discussion period. Um, and I hope to be talking for about uh, 45 minutes. So let me begin by defining this term multidimensionality. It can mean a lot of different things to different people. Um, I use it as a way to demarcate uh, uh, politics um, and uh, issues around politics that happen in the political sphere from uh, issues around social inequality, social status-based inequality. Oftentimes we think of racial and gender inequality as aspects of uh, social status-related inequalities in the social sphere. And then also the economic sphere, where we often discuss issues around income redistribution, which is particularly relevant around the issue of economic inequality. Um, so that's one way in which I use multidimensionality to distinguish or demarcate these different types of processes um, in the political, social, and economic spheres. But there are a couple other ways in which I use multidimensionality. Uh, one way is to think about how these spheres are integrated. In particular, we often talk about economic issues, uh, say class issues, issues of class inequality, as if they are separate from or at odds with or in conflict with other forms of inequality, such as racial and gender inequality. And so in this talk, what I'm trying to do is integrate those two, to, and specifically to try to understand how uh, gender and racial inequality uh, are part and parcel of economic inequality. Uh, and to get a better understanding of how to examine economic inequality from a class 
race, and gender perspective. The third way I talk about multidimensionality is in terms of differences uh, or possibly different options, you might call them dimensions, within each of these spheres. So for example, people often talk about, as I mentioned, uh, differences in the way people think about economic inequality, that is class inequality or income inequality, versus how they think about issues of race or gender inequality or immigration or other kinds of social issues. But then that assumes that the way people think about economic inequality is singular and the way people think about gender and racial inequality is singular. What I suggest actually is that there are different ways, even if you are concerned about issues of economic inequality, if you would like to see redistribution, there are different ways in which people may want to address that issue of economic inequality. So I tend to think about this as um, options within these spheres, but I think they could be in a very loose way thought of uh, uh, multi-dimensional processes within each of the spheres. Certainly there's a lot that occurs within each of these. Um, so very specifically then, of course I can't tackle all of those spheres um, in one talk. Uh, I am going to be breaking down the talk into three different sections and the focus is going to be on economic inequality. Um, and the first uh, section is going to focus on issues of economic inequality and economic opportunity. And I'm going to be looking specifically at a couple questions. One is uh, about the relationship between economic inequality and economic opportunity. Are these related? And if so, how? Most people think about uh, Americans as being um, interested only in equality of opportunity and therefore not caring about equality of outcomes. So that's an opposition. So these two would not be related, and I'll give you an example of that type of argument um, uh, in, in a moment. Um, then the other question has to do with whether or not uh, the types of ideas that people have about economic inequality and economic opportunity only concern certain social groups and not other social groups. For example, might these beliefs be about uh, class groups, low-income groups, or high-income groups, or might they also apply to people from marginalized racial and gender groups as well? Um, that's going to be the first part of the talk, really establishing how people think about the issue of economic inequality and economic opportunity. And I'm mostly going to focus on the US in, in that part of the talk. The second part of the talk is then going to move to um, the question of how do people want to address issues of economic inequality, like what policy domains and policy options are aligned with the beliefs about inequality and opportunity that I talk about in the first part. Um, and then also how do these uh, policy preferences vary along social and political or partisan dimensions. And then finally, in the third part, which will be very short, I will talk about the context of political institutions. Um, which options are actually apply, uh, available? Um, which options are actually supplied? Among those that uh, I will be talking about that seem to be uh, on the agenda, preferences for, for many people uh, uh, in terms of addressing inequality, how, many, how much of those um, are actually available uh, in the political sphere? Uh, do our electoral institutions 
provide a representation and responsiveness to what citizens and individuals desire i'm just realizing because it is so second nature to me that i'm still wearing my mask and i was going to take off my mask and i think i will right now i just want to warn you all that um i do have a cough i have allergies and i did have COVID about five weeks ago i'm totally fine now but i think it'll be i think it'll be better i may be popping some cough drops um but uh <laughs> i i should be okay and and uh so if i cough just don't worry <laughs> um all right, so, uh, so that's the structure uh, of the talk. Okay, so I, I said I would give you a more concrete uh, example of what I mean about the way uh, people are said in the US to think about issues of economic inequality and to oppose inequality and opportunity. So I wanna plant this kind of monolithic set of ideas in your head here at the beginning of the talk um, these ideas refer to ideologies such as the American dream ideology or American exceptionalism or American individualism. There are a lot of different terms for this. Um, I'll also be using the term and exploring uh, free market ideology, anti-government ideology. They're all kind of part of this monolithic uh, set of ideas that go something like this. Americans believe that everyone has an equal chance to rise through hard work and as a result, Individuals are responsible for their own destinies. Market outcomes are fair. And government redistribution is unnecessary. So you can see elements of the things that I had mentioned, right? Um, Anti-government ideology, we don't need government redistribution. Market outcomes are fair. That means people are free, believe in free market ideology. And then that everyone has an equal chance to rise to hard work. I'll call that a level playing field, the idea of a level playing field, and that should um, hold regardless of one's uh, racial or gender background or other kind of social background. So I'm going to try to pick this apart and provide evidence to evaluate each of these dimensions, although I won't be able to get to all of them um, in today's talk. Okay, so following from this set of uh, propositions and claims, um, there are a set of conventional, what I'll call conventional hypotheses. Um, one I've already mentioned, Americans care about opportunity and not inequality of outcomes. Americans are uncritical of the free market and oppose any non-profit maximizing interventions in the market. And government redistribution is the only viable option for reducing inequality, yet Americans show weak support for this option and therefore tolerate inequality. Okay, I think most of that is re repetitive of, of what I've already said. Our alternative set of hypotheses are that Americans connect inequalities of opportunity and inequalities of outcome. Americans are actually quite critical of market inequalities and that government and what I'm gonna call labor market redistribution present alternative and analytically distinct options for reducing inequality. Boiling this down, one of the key arguments that we're trying to make in our research, uh, and I'll talk about some of my collaborators in a moment, is that um, anti-government ideology has been conflated with free market ideology and should not be conflated with free market ideology or tolerance uh, of inequality. Um, let me quickly go over the data that I'll be using. I'm gonna be drawing from uh, a dozen or so uh, surveys. 
Uh, these surveys are, are some of the, the primary surveys that are used to examine these questions, such as the General Social Survey in the U.S. and the um, sorry, the International Social Survey Program, the ISSP, which is an international uh, survey uh, program or set of surveys that are uh, fielded in, I think I have data on about 29 countries. Um, and these data that I'm going to present from the ISSP are from the latest wave of uh, the ISSP, which fielded what are called the social inequality modules. Those data just became available a couple weeks ago. The final release just became available uh, a, a couple weeks ago, so that was good timing. Uh, and I've sort of put together some graphs to, uh, to portray uh, policy preferences across these countries. Uh, so that'll, that'll be in the second part of the talk, um, and in the third part of the talk will be more international in nature. Um, I've also conducted with colleagues survey experiments uh, using the time-sharing uh, experiments in the social sciences. It's called TESS. I'm going to refer to that as TESS. That is the premier platform for fielding representative prob probability-based survey experiments in the U.S. We've also used Amazon Mechanical Turk. Uh, and a private firm called Bovitz. Um, and then finally, there is some data that I've analyzed that, that was put on the uh, Survey of Economically Successful Americans that was fielded in, in 2011 by Benjamin Page and colleagues. And that is a survey, I'm going to refer to that as the top 1%. In, um, I think it's just in one graph. That is a representative survey of top-end wealth holders in the city of Chicago that was conducted in, I think it was released in 2011, I can't remember exactly when it was conducted, maybe in 2010. Um, and that is uh, a really um, great resource because it's very hard to survey that population. My methods for this talk are going to be mainly descriptive, I'm going to show a lot of graphs, uh, mainly bar graphs, particularly with the most recent data. Uh, but we've done a lot of extensive analyses with these data, particularly with, as you'll see uh, here, I don't know if I can use, is there a pointer here? I don't know if this is working. Oh, there it is, yeah. Um, 2014 is when we fielded, and in tests, um, in 2015, we fielded some of the new questions that I'm going to be presenting. And then we were quite lucky to get those questions uh, fielded in the, the 20, 2019 to 2021 ISSP. Um, I'm mostly going to focus on that most recent round. Um, but we've done a lot of analysis with the 2014 round of data. Um, and that 2014 round of data was also fielded in Sweden and in Denmark. So I have some further comparative. Uh, analyses to draw on, um, which I can talk further about in the in the Q of A Q and A, and of course, methodologically, we are using survey experiments for some of this work, particularly in the first part of the talk, and then uh, I've also done uh, content analysis, media content analysis, automated and hand coding, uh, pretty extensive research in in, in that uh, using those methodologies as well, and so that informs a lot of what I'm going to say in the interpretations as well, but I'm not going to present any of that. I'm happy to talk about it in the Q&A. Let me just make one uh, meta-methodological point um, here, and that is that we are interested in studying how people actually think about the issue of economic inequality, 
uh, rather than how they should think. And one of our arguments is that most of the literature focuses on questions that, that are, are um, based on a kind of deductive model of how uh, economic inequality should be addressed, mainly through government forms of redistribution. Um, and let me finally say that many collaborators have worked with me on several different uh, pieces of research that I'm going to be uh, putting in the lower left uh, corner there uh, in order to acknowledge all of those wonderful collaborators that have helped um, with this research. Okay, first part, uh, the relationship between perceptions of economic inequality and perceptions of economic opportunity. So we've developed uh, what we call the opportunity model of beliefs about inequality and redistribution. And the first part of this model is that uh, rising and high levels of inequality are salient. They become salient when they're perceived as restricting economic opportunity. And by economic opportunity, we mean things like good jobs with fair pay and benefits, as well as equal access to quality education. Some people call this inclusive capitalism. It's not exclusively inclusive capitalism. Some people call it shared prosperity. There are other terms for it. Um, and our hypothesis deriving from this uh, first part is that uh, inequality should reduce beliefs in equal opportunity based on individual effort. Hard work should be uh, sort of less prominent um, factor in people's mind when they think about their ability to get ahead or climb the economic ladder. Um, so therefore, this should also increase economic inequality, perceptions of, of economic inequality of outcomes should increase perceptions of structural barriers uh, along multiple dimensions. So we've extended our work to look at whether or not economic inequality creates perceptions that, um, that there are structural barriers to getting ahead uh, for not only lower class groups, but for marginalized racial and gender groups as well. The conventional H1C here uh, um, uh, hypothesis is that inequality should motivate. It should be a motivator to people to work harder, to reap greater uh, rewards. And this is uh, embodied in theories such as American Dream Ideology, as I mentioned. But if some of you are in psychology, system justification theory, uh, belief in a just world, a lot of economists have used these, relied on these theories as well. Um, the other idea that is, has become embedded in sort of this conventional hypothesis is that economic inequality creates competition, what's called horizontal competition among groups, um, social divisions uh, that prevent solidaristic behavior. So it's not taken as a given that economic inequality will create uh, perceptions that economic inequality creates restricted opportunities for many groups across society, rather than only some groups, perhaps only whites or, uh, or men. Um, a lot of the literature on eco economic inequality has, in fact, focused on the declining fortunes of white men who uh, do not have a college degree. Um, so there are a lot of questions about whether or not economic inequality creates divisions or what we argue in H1 might be the basis for solidaristic um, beliefs and behavior. Uh, that, I, I have to emphasize, that does not mean that there aren't social divisions. I very much believe that those social divisions are real, that white supremacy is real, that, that particularly in the US, uh, there is a 
plutocracy that rules in that country, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, but those things are very real, and I do not in any way want to diminish those. But I also want to look for opportunities or ways to think about um, countering that constant drumbeat of division, 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 which I think is destructive in and of itself, that, that discourse. Um, and almost no literature that we know of or research that we know of has tried to connect issues around economic inequality, class inequality, to issues of racial and gender economic inequality, which is kind of startling. Um, at least in the US, if, if you all know of other uh, examples here or um, in other places, I'd be happy to hear about those. Um, okay, and then the second part that derives from how we are hypothesizing people's perceptions of inequality and opportunity is that concerns of uh, restricted opportunities, uh, and these concerns are based on uh, economic and patterns of economic inequality, that these concerns in turn prompt demands for opportunity enhancing policies, which we hypothesize to be support, for example, for educational and employment policies that reduce labor market inequalities. The conventional hypothesis is that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, support of government redistribution is the only viable option and that free market ideology reigns <laughs> supreme and leaves no other option because it rejects social uh, and equity interventions in the market. And that's what I'll be talking about in the second part of the talk. Okay, we uh, used survey experiments in the US um, to test this first part about, uh, of the opportunity model. Uh, the treatment, oh, it looks like there is a formatting problem here. Um, the treatment uh, is a, a realistic, descriptive article about economic inequality, trends in economic inequality over time, both income inequality and pay inequality. I'm not gonna show you in the interest of time the, um, the treatment, but it came from a nonpartisan group research uh, arm of the US Congress called the Congressional Budget Office. Um, and then we have a similar format article that is on trends in Major League Baseball all-star uh, game wins, and that ha is very similar in format because it uses statistics. And, and our treatment is also very numerical and statistical, um, going over trends in uh, measures of, of median uh, income and pay, and low-end pay, and high-end pay, and so on. I can talk a little bit more about that if you'd like um, later. The measures of opportunity, uh, the first set of measures that I'm going to talk about um, have to do with these notions of hard work, whether or not hard work is uh, important in getting ahead, um, and hard work is what creates a level playing field for all groups, so therefore no one should be disadvantaged based on their, um, their gender or race or class. Um, and then the uh, more structuralist perspective, these will be separate questions, have to do with the importance of coming from a wealthy family or ha having well-educated parents, that people identify these as sort of structural factors that are important, that do shape one's ability to have access to economic opportunity. Um, and, uh, and these will be, as I said, measured separately. I'm gonna go over those questions in the next slide. And then finally, in the next part, we have uh, questions about redistribution in which we've added uh, an option here about major or private companies uh, being responsible for reducing earnings inequality in addition to the more typical question, which is about government reducing post-tax and transfer income inequality. All right, so these are the questions that we're using as our main dependent variables after individuals read either the article about trends in 
rising uh, and high levels of income inequality and pay inequality, or the base in the control group, the baseball um, statistics. And so I'm just showing you here the, the variables, not the actual results from the survey experiment. Uh, just to get you familiar with um, these data, they come from the International Social, Social Survey Program, the Social Inequality Module. People who work with those data, these are very commonly used uh, in the literature. Um, so there are separate questions that ask, how important is hard work in getting ahead? And I've graphed here the share that say that hard work is essential or very important in getting ahead. And I've charted that for the US public for the top 1%. I mentioned that was the survey that Benjamin Page fielded in Chicago. And then I have the median for ISSP countries, including the US. It's about, I think, 16 countries that are similar to the US, so primarily rich democracies. That's, as I said, in red. And then if you're curious, in the bottom right there, I looked at uh, the share for Great Britain. Um, and this is in the latest, uh, as I said, the latest um, wave of ISSP data that was just released a couple weeks ago. Um, so I've updated uh, this chart to reflect the most recent year of data, but I have to confess it's really remarkable how similar this chart is to the chart that I did in 2010. Um, okay, so what do we see quickly? Um, the more structural factors are on the, the right three groups of columns. That's coming um, from a wealthy family. That's in the middle there, having uh, uh, or parents' education as an important factor in getting ahead, and then knowing the right people. I group those three as structural factors relative to hard work as the individualistic factor. And in short, what we find is that, yes, Americans are more likely than um, those, uh, at least at the median of the ISSP, to say that hard work is an important factor or an essential factor in getting ahead. Yet, at the same time, uh, Americans are actually more likely uh, than those in other uh, similar countries to say that these structural factors, parents' education coming from a wealthy family and knowing the right people are important in getting ahead. And not only that, they're much more likely than the top 1% to say that these structural factors are important. Only 1% of the top 1% sample said that coming from wealthy parents is very important in getting ahead. And I looked at their background. <laughs> they, they definitely uh, did not come from average families. Uh, so. <laughs> um, this is really important because it's often said that Americans uh, all think that they are rich and that they take on the beliefs of rich people. Um, but again, we don't have a lot of data to back up some of these uh, claims. So uh, as you'll see, Great Britain is um, ab above the median in terms of uh, the hard work, how important hard work is. So 81 versus 69. But they're at about the median for the other factors. So think in about roughly the same way structurally as other countries that are similar. Um, but let's, I'd, I'd like to come back to this, um, just sort of store that away uh, when we talk about redistributive preferences um, later in the talk. All right, so these are the results from the, uh, from the surveys, uh, the, the survey experiment. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm not gonna talk about the blue bar right now, I'm just gonna talk about the control group relative to the inequality treatment group. The control group is in gray, and the inequality treatment group is in black. 
And what we find is that structural factors, you can see here, are the perception of structural factors in the treatment have, after having read the article on inequality are statistically higher than in the control. So people do think in a more structural way um, after reading the inequality article relative to the control, and they think less uh, about hard work as an important factor relative to the control. Of course, I want to acknowledge here, as I showed in the prior slide, that more, you know, a higher share of people think that hard work is important. Um, that's another part of this, you know, then think that the structural factors are important. These are scales, by the way, I forgot to mention that. So the structural factors is a scale of the structural factors that I mentioned in the previous slide and same with the individual factors. Um, so yes, there, are, uh, there is a, a tendency to think about hard work more than um, as it being more important factor than structural factors, but that's true in other countries, not just in the US. Um, and that's part of the multidimensionality issue as well. People think both that hard work is important and that structural factors matter. Um, Okay, so what we found um, in looking at the ISSP data a little bit further was that in the inequality treatment, uh, the questions about uh, race, racial background and whether being a man or woman also were in the same, significant and in the same direction. That is, people became more likely to see race and gender as important factors in getting ahead after reading the inequality treatment. That is, they were more likely to think about those um, as being affected, you know, that there were structural consequences for, uh, based on people's racial background and, and their gender. However, what we found was that those questions used terms like race, uh, how important is racial background in getting ahead, and how important is being a man or a woman. Big problem with the way those questions are worded, and unfortunately we weren't able to get them revised for this latest uh, wave. And the big problem is that what if you think race matters, but it's because you think whites are disadvantaged? That is a big argument in the US that whites believe that uh, blacks and Latinx individuals are more advantaged than whites. So that still means that race matters, but we can't tell whether that means that people think that um, being uh, from a marginalized racial background or being from a privileged uh, racial background matters. So we developed these new tests, um, these new questions that ask specifically about advantages in getting ahead for eight target groups, uh, high, people coming from high income backgrounds, uh, people, uh, men, whites, Asians, women, blacks, Latinx individuals, and low income individuals. This is, I'm showing you just the results from the control group before I show you the, um, the experimental uh, results. And, and we found these to be really interesting because it does contrast with the idea of a level playing field. So in the control group, we found that respondents uh, were significantly more likely to say that people coming from a high income, income background are, um, do have greater advantages. So, the scale is uh, they don't have any advantages at all to they have advantages to a large extent. Um, so the higher the number means that the, that, the, that group uh, is perceived to have advantages to a larger extent, um, or to a large extent. Uh, and we see this hierarchy here. So I've ordered these um, in according to their values. So we have a kind of what we're calling a social uh, structure of economic, a perceived social structure of economic opportunity. 
in which people believe that um, there are groups that have advantages over other groups. Um, and they fall along the lines that we would predict them to fall. Uh, and we find this exact same distribution, and these are all statistically significantly different from each other, we find the same distribution when we look at a subgroup of whites without a college, four-year college degree. These are the experimental results. We did not find much of a statistical difference between control and uh, treatment. Treatment, again, is the inequality article for the higher structurally advantaged groups. I, I have Asians here in a middle category um, in the US. Those are uh, both South and, and East Asian. Um, uh, I can talk more about that in the Q&A if you'd like. Um, but we group them with the higher uh, status groups, structurally advantaged groups. Um, but we do find statistically significant differences between control and treatment in, for the lower status groups, the structurally disadvantaged groups. Um, and so this suggests that it is not that people's perceptions of economic inequality as restricting economic opportunity is not restricted only to certain uh, groups, say, for example, uh, low-income whites. Uh, but there generally is a perception of what we call a general structural orientation of restricted economic opportunity. Okay, um, I want to switch now to the second part. Oh my goodness, time is flying by. <laughs> I'm going to try to go quickly, more, more quickly over this um, section where I'm going to talk about the policy preferences um, that we think are more aligned potentially with concerns about economic opportunity. Um, and I'm going to skip this because I've already talked about it. Uh, this, I just want to say, was motivated our original uh, research showing very high support uh, for policies such as um, increased government spending on education. Uh, so it does involve a government policy. Um, this is asking whether there should be greater spending on education by the government. Um, and when you compare this to the dotted line, that is the share that supports the classic explicit government redistribution question, that is, government should be responsible for, for redistributing income from um, wealthy people to poor people. Um, and this is, the, this is what's been used. This Oops, sorry about that. This, the the uh, dotted line, that's been used to argue that Americans don't care about inequality or that they're anti-government. Um, uh, and we're showing here that there is great support for educational policies. Um, by the government. Uh, well, that's where we began. Now, what we're trying to do is think more about what are uh, ways that the private sector um, is perceived and which ways are, is the private sector perceived as an actor, uh, as unfair, essentially, and therefore as also responsible for reducing earnings and pay inequality. Most of the research focuses on this quadrant here where it's the public sector that focuses on uh, reducing disposable income inequality. What we're trying to do uh, is we're actually going to kind of skip over this part. There have been various surveys that do show very high support, even among Republicans in the US, for raising the minimum wage and for other forms of business regulation by the government. But we're skipping over to this quadrant. That's what I'm going to focus on with our new questions about whether private companies should themselves be responsible in some way for reducing pay disparities within the workplace. And 
what we want to do is create a parallel question that is about explicit redistribution of pay within major companies. There have been other uh, questions that ask about you know, whether executives make too much money um, or whether unskilled uh, workers make too little money. But those aren't explicitly asking, should corporations explicitly reduce pay inequality like the government redistribution uh, question, this question, this is what's used. Uh, that is, and that's the question that is used in this dotted line. Those are the results um, from that question with, with that dotted line. And, and that's what everyone uses in, in the literature. Um, okay, so we just replicated. We tried to make this very carefully controlled so that we can try to have a question about reducing inequality in corporations that's very simple, similar to the question about reducing government redistribution. Um, and what we found initially uh, in 2014, the 2014 data, is that 56% of Americans found that uh, uh, supported the idea that corporations should reduce inequality uh, within um, major corp within their workplaces versus the 47% who believe the government should reduce income inequality through tax and transfer policies. Um, and even more important, I think, is that we find that two-thirds of Americans believe that one or, or the other of these actors or these ways of reducing inequality, um, uh, that they support those. So two-thirds support that versus what we have uh, in the literature conventionally is this 47% that supports government redistribution. We also find treatment effects. I'm going to skip over this right now. We find treatment effects that, that the inequality treatment does increase support for both of these types of policies, including the market redistribution question. This is skipping ahead. I'm just going to focus on the 2019 to 2021 data from the ISSP. This is breaking down the support for the market redistribution, major companies redistrib redistributing pay versus the government. In the darker bars is the market-based question. In the lighter bars is the uh, government-based. Uh, in the blue are breakdowns by race, and in red are the breakdowns by uh, partisanship. And uh, for the most part, most people in most groups uh, believe that, um, or, or a higher share believe that, uh, that the market is responsible, the private companies are responsible for reducing inequality. Uh, and what you see is a really, uh, the most, I think, significant difference. The other differences are not always statistically significant here. There's somewhat uh, of a substantial difference here among whites. But really, the largest difference is among Republicans. These are the people you would think most likely to support free market ideology, but say, and are anti-government. But this is uh, uh, evidence that, that anti-government ideology does not equate to free market ideology. Um, again, I'm going to kind of skip through a few of these um, here uh, to get to the next question that we developed uh, and was uh, it was fielded in, 20, in 2015 with the test survey experiments. And this is now on the ISSP and asked of virtually all countries in the latest wave of the ISSP. And it's a forced choice question. And it asks, from the following list, who do you think should have the greatest responsibility for reducing differences in income between people with high incomes and people with low incomes? 
and the options that are given are private companies. So these, these, these uh, options are a little bit different than what we had originally, but they, the wording of these questions had to be worked out in um, the drafting committee of the ISSP. Uh, so there was quite a bit of negotiation around how this question would be adapted to the full ISSP um, uh, set of surveys. So the options on the ISSP are private companies in this order. They're not randomized. Private companies, government, trade unions. We had charity. We didn't have, char we, we didn't have trade unions in our original question. We had charity because people often say, oh, Americans just want, you know, they're, they're givers, right? Um, and uh, a lot of redistribution occurs through um, nonprofit organizations. Uh, so that's why we put that in. Very few people mention charities as being the most responsible for reducing inequality. Um, okay, so trade unions uh, is in this version of the country uh, of, of the question. Um, high income individuals themselves, low income individuals themselves. We wanted to see the extent to which, especially with low income individuals themselves, uh, that uh, poorer people and low, low income people are blamed. Um, that would be uh, for inequality, and that would be a, uh, an indication of individualistic beliefs. The other factors are more structural or institutional factors. Um, and then we provided the option at the end that income differences do not need to be reduced. So we're asking explicitly whether people, uh, you know, they are free to say that inequality doesn't need to be reduced, right? So we can get at the share that actually does tolerate uh, inequality. Okay, so I'm just going to focus on this uh, graph on the right here because on the left, it's a little bit different results. That's from 2015 when we fielded this in tests. Um, one thing I, I want to say that I have not said, I, I meant to say already, I mean, I meant to say earlier, is that the ISSP wave in the US was fielded during COVID, post COVID. It was late 2020. So I believe that the results for the US are affected by COVID. For Great Britain, the numbers that I showed you, they, that, that was fielded with the British Social Attitudes Survey in, in 2019, so it was pre-COVID. And for most of the other countries, Sweden, I'm going to show you, it's pre-COVID as well. But then I'm going to show you all the countries, and about four or five of them uh, were during um, COVID. <laughs> so I'm sure there are COVID effects here. Um, so the main thing to notice uh, about the U.S. in, in 2020, uh, in, in the right uh, graph here, is, um, is that you do have a substantial, it is a minority, but a substantial minority that says that uh, private companies um, are, uh, let's see, this is everyone all together. So even everyone together, there is a uh, 38 38% who say the government is most responsible, but a pretty substantial additional share, 29%, say that private companies are the most responsible. And it is the modal category for Republicans that private companies are the most responsible. Even higher than saying inequality does not be, need to be reduced, and much higher than saying that low-income people are responsible themselves. Uh, Britain is on the left and Sweden is on the right. Um, I unfortunately did not have access to party uh, voting or partisan identification in the ISSP sample. Um, I'm not sure why. Well, no, I do know. I, I looked at the documentation and uh, the British Social, Social Attitude Survey does not uh, include a question about party identification or party voting. 
unless the election took place the year before. And they fielded the survey in 2019, which was the, was the year of the last general election. Um, so I substituted in here education. Uh, we don't see a lot of differences across educational groups. Actually, I'm hoping we can talk about this in the Q&A. Um, I'm going to show you in the next slide breakdowns by racial groups. But I, I wanted to show you this also from Sweden, where we see uh, uh, also government being the most prominent um, uh, answer, you know, as in um, Great Britain. But you see a little bit more of an emphasis on private companies as being responsible in Great Britain and uh, relative to Sweden, a little bit more uh, identifying trade unions as the most important um, in Sweden. On the right is the breakdown by racial groups. And uh, among whites is, is really where you see the more substantial um, share of people who say that private companies, again, by no means uh, the modal category, but a substantial minority saying that private companies ought to be responsible for reducing inequality. Probably not surprising. It's more surprising, I think, in the US case. Virtually no one says, here's the Great Britain as a whole. No one says that inequality should not be reduced or that low-income people are responsible. All right, now I am going to quickly go through, uh, these are just a few more uh, uh, graphs that show the entire range of countries in the ISSP and their answers. Uh, so this is the share of each of these countries that said that government was the most responsible for reducing inequality. Um, and you see, and, I, and I've got in red the Anglo countries um, and I've got in blue the Nordic. I've separated those out mainly because the US and and, and Great Britain, UK, are Anglo countries, and because my collaborator, who's worked a lot on these data, as I, is from Sweden, and as I said, we did a lot of analysis of these data in 2014, because it was on the Swedish um, ISSP, and also uh, um, on the Danish uh, YouGov survey. So that's why I'm separating out those. My apologies to the others, people from the other countries, um, but uh, we could talk a little bit more about those. I just didn't think it would be uh, uh, digestible um, uh, if, if I had coded each region a different color. Um, so we see that the Anglo countries, Great Britain is around the median, even above the median when it comes to government being the most responsible. The other Anglo countries are more predictive, predictably uh, lower in their support of government being the main actor. But when we move to private companies being the most responsible, and these are all on the same scale from zero to one, you see the Anglo countries more uh, to the right, the higher, more likely to, to say that private companies are um, important uh, or the, the most important or the most responsible for, for reducing uh, inequality. And then the Nordic countries are, are more in the middle. Um, uh, you know, the, the Nordic countries are, are a little bit of a different um, beast because of how low, relatively speaking, inequality has been rising in uh, some of those countries, and it is a big issue there. Um, and wealth inequality, for example, is very high in Sweden. So I'm, I don't want to try to say that inequality is not an issue, but you have to interpret these data a little bit differently given their lower levels of inequality relative to the US or the UK. Um, 
So lower, but still substantial, and this is where the Anglo countries show up. Um, and that, that makes you know, a big difference when you're adding up overall support for reducing inequality, that you add this particular option um, of reducing inequality um, in major companies. Okay, same with blaming low-income individuals. Yes, the Anglo countries are more likely than other countries to say low-income individuals are more responsible for reducing inequality, but the level is very low. Um, the absolute level uh, is very low. And then finally, same for um, the option that inequality does not need to be reduced. The Anglo countries and a few Nordic countries <laughs> are saying that inequality does not need, need to be reduced. Um, again, we need to interpret that within the light of lower levels of inequality within the Nordic countries. I think I'm running out of time, right? Um, so I, <laughs> so I am just, uh, I'm not going to talk about this. Wait, I, I just, let me just show this one last slide. Um, and this is, uh, this is about political institutions. And, um, and what I'm showing here is the share very high in most countries um, uh, that uh, agree that politicians don't care about reducing inequality. So this is about sort of the lack of responsiveness of political institutions to addressing the issue of inequality. And the US uh, and Great Britain are there uh, about the median or, or above the median. Okay, uh, summary. Um, so trying to question American exceptionalism, I don't want to be, uh, go all the way over in the opposite direction you know, and say that Americans think like Swedes or whatever. You know, that's not my point. Um, but it, it is to sort of try to break apart the different pieces of a pretty monolithic set of claims and ideologies about the way Americans think about inequality that I just don't think stands up to um, scrutiny uh, if we're looking at and using systematic data and evidence. Um, an alternative uh, that I haven't talked about but that is something that is discussed in the literature has to do with the failure of political institutions to better represent public desires for less inequality. And uh, an argument could be made that this long-standing failure to reduce economic inequality, um, not just by class, but also economically by race and gender, um, has uh, led to political instability, uh, protest movements, um, and what I think is an emerging um, development, uh, which is the merging of social movements with electoral politics. So what, I guess this is important for a social policy um, audience, there has been a shift to focusing um, on the political, changing the political process itself because it's not representative of uh, public desires. Much less attention to arguing about this policy or that policy. It's not so much about policy debates uh, as it is about um, trying to create a more representative political system. The US is unusual. It's an extremely undemocratic country in terms of its political institutions. Um, I can talk more about that. Um, those have really just become the, the, the central focus of political organizing to reduce inequality. Um, and then to propose this multidimensional framework, which I hope is useful for um, other countries as well. Uh, and I'm just going to close there. My apologies for, for, going, for going over. Um, thank you all. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? 
come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you very much. That was a very rich talk and uh, lots to think about. Um, we have about 35 minutes for questions. There are some roving mics, uh, so please can you put up your hand and the mic will come to you. And when you get it, can you say um, who you are and where you're from before asking your question? And please do keep your questions um, uh, as questions as much as possible. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so there's a hand over here, the blue, blue jumper. Hi, um, my name's Alicia Weston. I'm the CEO of an organization. I'm here. I'm here. There you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm the CEO of an organization that works on health inequalities, actually. So, but I'm, my background is actually in investment banking. Um, and I'm just really curious about this last statement that you have there, ditch inclusive capitalism, because it isn't viable. Could you possibly expand on your thoughts there, please? Yeah, well, this is just often a response that I get, you know, that um, that uh, we need to be concerned about losing jobs to artificial intelligence and technology and so on, rather than creating sustainable, high-wage uh, jobs with generous benefits and so on. So it's more of a, you know, and people in, in, in that, um, uh, from that perspective, then suggest, well, we just need to take kids in congress. We need more government. Um, redistribution to solve those problems that, that it's just not feasible to alter the private sector, the distribution of pay in the private sector. So that's really where that's coming. That's more of a sort of question and, and a response that I often get. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I'm not necessarily, I mean, I think there's still a lot of room yeah. to uh, create greater economic yeah. justice in, yeah. in the private sector, yeah. certainly. Um, yeah, yeah I, I, I misunderstood. I thought that was possibly something you were proposing, but you're saying that other people are proposing that, and you're saying, yeah, okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, there's one at, towards the back there, the white, the white top, the right-hand side. My right-hand side. To the right. Um, thank you very much for the presentation. I think it was very interesting. My name is Karthik. I'm an undergraduate student at the Department of Social Policy. Um, with reference to, I think, the way in which you talked about how political positions do not always represent the positions that people may hold, not just in terms of inequality as you presented, but also we know on a, a number of different issues, be it gun control and so on. And I wanted to get your opinion on how this sort of uh, lack of representation of a more range of perspectives that people might, might hold on these positions would spur disillusionment of you know, a group of people who feel that they don't exactly feel represented in politics and to what extent there's an impact on the way in which we engage youth today, for example, engage with political processes, institutions, and party politics. Yes, I, I think this is a crucial, crucial question and I think this is where uh, the inequality uh, community, the anti-inequality community uh, in the U.S. is really heading. Um, it's become a coalitional movement. So, uh, you know, inequality is an extremely important part of our uh, very tumultuous times. Um, but so are other issues, right? So there's activism around climate, of course. Um, there's activism around racial justice. There's activism around now reproductive rights. Uh, and justice in the U.S. 
And I believe that what is happening here is sort of a merging of social movements, none of which believe that their issues are being suffered back. Um, that a minority, essentially, you know, you may think I'm this crazy radical talking about minority <laughs> rule in the US, but this is now a common way of describing the political structure in the US in our, in our mainstream newspapers. It's pretty dramatic, I would have to say. And it only occurred in the past five years. Um, and that's why I'm saying that the social movements are starting to get emerging into the electoral field because there's, there is a, uh, a frustration and an anger about the lack of representation across these very crucial issues. And the younger generation, you mentioned the youth, are seeing these as integrated. Um, and so they're working in coalitions to, uh, to elect, um, and, and thinking about electoral politics as itself a grassroots uh, movement, um, to elect uh, people who will better represent these, um, these, these issues, which for the most part are uh, popular in, in the sense that a majority of people do want action on these serious issues. If, if you want to follow up, I think, uh, thank you very much. If I can just quickly follow up. I wanted to ask how that sits in the larger two-party system, institutionalization of the DCCC as well as big donors for majorly private companies and rich people, and how we think that sort of imbibes the system with a sense of inertia, which may or may not be successful considering its activism. Yes, again, great, great question. Um, uh, the response is uh, grassroots organizing. Very, very layer intensive work uh, that is occurring not just in what are called, often called the left behind, right? Uh, that's, it, it's important there um, where there is indigenous movement, big engagement in rural areas, for example. Um, but it's happening in New York State, for example, where I live in New York City, a, a lot of the most vibrant organizing because there hasn't been a lot of representation of these interests, even in New York State. Yes, issues like reproductive rights, no on other issues like funding public education, you would think this is so fundamental, right? Um, but it's massive inequalities in public education in access to university education at the public university where I work, the University of New York, it was not funded. It didn't then essentially, um, uh, I, I don't want to use defunded because that's a pretty um, loaded term which I think applies more to other issues. Uh, such as the criminal legal system, um, but it has not kept up with inflation, right? And it certainly hasn't kept up with the needs of a growing uh, population of students who are CUNY, the University of New York, is uh, widely regarded as uh, one of the um, primary universities that create eligibility for low uh, individuals coming to low so it's happening right in New York, um, and there are there are third parties that are organizing things called the Working Family Party, for example, very active there, um, and they're winning. You know, I I was uh, involved in the Working Family Party when it first started, which was in the mid '90s, and I pretty much wrote it off as having an impact, but it is starting to have enormous impact. It's just very hard. This is organizing for the very long term. <laughs> you know, everyone. Of the kind of uh, organizing and successes we're talking about. But they are very specific. 
they're, they're winning. It's just that, uh, and, and they're winning in a number of different states, like in seven states and less than states. Um, so they're not winning all, all the time. Um, and so it's kind of a, a long game. Thank you, Ben. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Thank you. Yes. Thank you very much. Good evening. I'm a hospital doctor and a lawyer, and I wonder in this whole debate about and this lecture about inequality, that you haven't mentioned the inequality in healthcare in America, whether that was deliberately left out of the questionnaire because America is one of the nations where healthcare is one of the most expensive, big business, and yet the enormous inequality. 45 million Americans having no access to basic health care at all, which left Obama to start Obamacare. Could you explain a bit more why it is left out of this uh, research survey, please? Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's a, that's a great question. Um, if you don't mind, I'm going to scroll back up. Um, to this. Um, so, uh, I guess I can move around a little bit here, right? <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so social insurance uh, in the, under the broad rubric of public actors uh, reducing disposable income inequality. And, you know, this is an example of where uh, I would say that most Americans do favor health insurance for all for all, um, but there's a lot of politicization around the message. Um, and uh, it, it kind of goes back to the question that was asked previously, um, that these, this political conversation and discourse then shape public opinion. So we can't just sort of take public opinion as exogenous. Um, but, but it is also very much shaped by the political discourse and, and competing um, this way. It's partly why I like to look at uh, how people think about private sector actors, because often the argument is made that, well, Americans don't want to see the government involved in, um, in people's lives or private lives or enforcing uh, corporations to um, provide X or Y benefits. But actually, that's the primary way that uh, healthcare, or one of the primary ways healthcare has been provided, which is in this they'll see here. So private actors, of course, they're given, um, they're given tax credits um, in order to provide that health insurance. Um, but many Americans have come to see it as part of the benefit given by companies. By the companies. Uh, and, and favor that because it's the only thing they know because they have not necessarily had any other options. Um, so I, I do find it to be, and, and there is a, a lot of research specifically on the complicated nature of it because of polarization around Barack Obama. But um, if, if you followed that debate, then you saw how much criticism there was of what was called Obamacare. Um, but once it was threatened to be taken away, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, there was a lot of opposition to doing that. So people want this kind of option, but frankly, of course, like many things in the U.S., uh, the Affordable Care Act was a compromise. And it was, and it had many elements of it that were very challenging for people, um, right? Because it wasn't truly a universal program. 
Lobbying from big pharma, from big private healthcare companies who do not want to change, who have no incentive to change to a national insurance system because they will lose out enormous profits. Right, and absolutely, and and just recently, there have been so many bills passed um, with many different things included in them. But just recently, I believe it was the infrastructure bill. Um, which is called the Inflation Reduction Act, um, that did, if I'm not mistaken, have uh, a piece in there about the federal government being able to bargain for lower prescription drug um, costs in the Medicare program. Very popular for many years, but was not able to be passed, right, until 2020. So we've got uh, one, two, three questions. So here, here in the front first. Then in the middle of that, towards that, that's no, this, this is over here. And then I'm going to take them in order. Yep, you guys. Hi, um, I'm Rafael I come from Kalifan. Uh, I study political economy of Native. Uh, hi, I'm Rafael Jansudonov. I am from Kazakhstan. I study political economy of Native development. I have a graduate program. I also studied in the U.S. And uh, before coming to the U.K., uh, I thought that the U.S. and the U.K. are the same, but they're not the same. <laughs> uh, and I have this question. Uh, the, the United States is known uh, as a, a country where the private, the private sector has solved many problems. Private education, like Harvard, is uh, manufacturing Ford. Uh, many innovations uh, that we now enjoy. But the, the, the United States seems to be the country that is beset by like grotesque uh, inefficiencies, uh, the access to health care, one, uh, gun violence. The United States is like the only developed country with uh, so many incidents of gun violence. And, and uh, uh, the third one is production. You do not, I mean, like walking in London, you, you, you do not see so many people with obesity. And the American society seems to tolerate being uh, a servant to private interests. And so I am wondering why the American society kind of accepts the inferior uh, outcome from the private sector in this instance, which is concerned the well-being of all, 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 all Americans, and by this I mean the inferior health care, yeah. uh, gun violence, and uh, production of food. And by the way, these issues are talked about in the political life among the, the Greek people. I just uh, yesterday I went to a post office, and the workers at the post office, you know, like they were discussing how horrible it would be to have an injury in the United States. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so what I've been trying to suggest is actually Americans don't tolerate these things and that the political um, structure is, has not been able to implement um, these policies that are very popular um, because it is uh, an undemocratic um, structure. 
structure. And what, what do I mean by undemocratic? Um, undemocratic means that a presidential candidate who is popularly elected does not become the president because of the electoral college, which gives greater weight to smaller states, um, to the smaller population. Uh, that's just one example. There's gerrymandering. There are a number of different examples. And like I said, this is not just me up here speaking. This is now the mainstream view. It's taken a long time for this to become a mainstream view. Uh, let me just give you one example because you mentioned gun violence. Uh, in my memory, uh, after the latest terrible mass shooting, um, it was the first time I believe, uh, again, this is not systematic analysis, but it was the first time in which no one, at least in the media, demanded that there be politicians. And the reason is because they, they were tired of pressuring, you know, like even pretending that creating that kind of pressure was going to have any impact. Again, very mainstream elements. People are so disillusioned that not even mainstream journalists are going to talk about this. So it's like, you know, I won't even say that government, that finally, say finally, government should, should impose or should enact which are very popular in the U.S. Um, uh, because they didn't even think they'd be uttering those kinds of demands. Um, the Supreme Court just overturned a law, New York State law, that prohibited the carrying of guns in, in most places. So do you think New York State is in support of that? No, they're in support of gun control. But the Supreme Court has overruled that. That is undemocratic. Um, so I, I think you know I think in some ways the UK and um, and the US have a lot of similarities. You know I, I think that there are obviously we, we both have very high levels of inequality um, and uh, their finance plays a big role um, in the UK as it does in the US. Uh, I don't think that the structures, political structures, are as undemocratic in the UK as they are in the US. So without repeating myself, I think, I think I'll just stop. I'll just stop there. We have another question. Yes, there's a question here. Thank you very much. Um, I'm right here. <laughs> thank you so much for your time, and thank you so much for the Department of Social Policy for bringing you here. My name is Grace. I'm a Master's of Public Policy student here. You can hear that I am American. I'm actually from Syracuse, New York, so it was resonating with a lot of the New York State politics. Um, Unless I misunderstood kind of what you were presenting, I was really intrigued particularly by kind of the public opinion around having the private sector responsible for reducing inequality. And my question here really lies in kind of like the model employer function of the government. Like we know it particularly in the US, the government has been really important for employing women, for employing black folks, et cetera, and making sure that folks like have better access to higher wages, et cetera, that they're not seeing in the private sector, and the private sector kind of coming along once the government sets those standards. So I'm curious, kind of your analysis of, is that something that the government as a model employer can still do, or is it that folks are disillusioned with the government and therefore turning to the private sector, or is it more of like the American dream, private sector solves our problems, even when we don't know we're thinking in that way? Mm -hmm. So, thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you for the question. Um, I, if I can, I'd like to reformulate it a little yes, bit. Yes, please which, do. Which, no, which is right. It's right on target. It's just that the way that we've been thinking about this is 
has to do with, um, you know, how might this be implemented, right? If, if, right, if, if people do have this um, uh, belief or desire for private companies to become more um, equal, uh, then, you know, because there are, I didn't talk about it, but there are vast pay disparities within corporations and in the private sector, right? So there is a lot of um, concern about that. Um, so in this, uh, it kind of goes back to this, this. Yeah, so there's, there are a number of uh, surveys or an, an individual polls to show that Americans are highly supportive of government regulation of business. So for example, they're very critical. Uh, I also have other slides about trust in, in private corporations. So um, trust in private corporations is actually pretty low. It's not as low as trust in government, but um, it's, it's fairly low. And it's definitely below the mean of the scale, the middle of the scale. Um, and, uh, and a number of people who uh, have looked at this going back even to the 1980s, like Seymour Lipset in his early studies, show very high support for, for government regulation of business. So it's there. Um, you know, I think, as I mentioned, there have been studies on the minimum wage, for example, very high. You know, you might have heard about the um, passing of um, ballot measures, state ballot measures in red states. And, you know, the same states that will vote for a Republican or governor will, will vote to pass a ballot measure um, proposition that increases minimum wages. So that's one example. But what we were trying to do is to really directly challenge this idea of free market. Right. And suggest that which is often used to say, oh, Americans don't want the government to interfere in corporations. Um, so I, I think regulation is certainly an option to answer the how question. We have many more questions on the latest CSS that, that try to address this how question. For example, we have one about should workers be represented on corporate boards. And if I'm not mistaken, about two thirds of Americans say yes, workers should be represented on corporate boards. Um, you might have heard about the organizing campaigns at Amazon and at Starbucks and at Apple. Um, and so if you look at uh, Gallup or Pew uh, polling, they're showing things like you know, uh, support for unions in the two-thirds to 70% range. We have a question on unions as well um, in, uh, in this latest version of the CSS. And it's not quite that high. You know, and, and it is similar to a question that was asked in the passing CSS. Um, and there has been an increase over time. And other people have done really good surveys on this. And those have also shown increases over time. It's more like 50%, I'd say, okay. um, that support unionization. And, and the selection of trade unions, you can see I had charities over here. This was in the 2016 version. But in the trade unions, very small numbers will say trade unions are the most responsible. You know, I, I think that's, I mean, it may be exactly what it, you know, it means exactly what it looks like. It means or it could be that people just, they're not visible enough. You know, maybe as they become more visible as an option, people become more successful at organizing, then it, it could be seen as, you know, this is a pretty strong question. You have to say, you know, they're the most responsible right. in the bar. So I hope that answers it. Thank you. We've got a few more questions. We've got one over this. We don't have one on this side. So we've got one over here. I think there are 
there. Yes, so we'll take this one first and then if you come to you, if that's right, and then we've got one down here. So I'm keeping trying to keep track of this one. Just trying to even out across the sides. Just behind you. Sorry. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you very much. Um, so I'm Liam Baisa-McGraw, right at the back. Um, I'm an assistant professor within the Department of Social Policy. Um, really interesting talk, both for the kind of general trends, but also these specifics, I think, are really understudied in the literature. Um, and there's a bunch of questions I could ask, but I'll ask one that I think is a bit self-serving. Um, so as someone who does a lot of research on public opinion, how people understand inequalities, policy preferences in the field of climate change, for example, one question I get very often is, okay, but why? Right? So if we see a lack of kind of policy responsiveness, uh, particularly in the case uh, when you're talking about uh, welfare states within the US, but also in terms of climate policy, um, why does public opinion matter? How does public opinion matter? Um, and yeah, how do we square the circle of this kind of demand for the public in terms of some areas, uh, but then not being matched in terms of policy responsiveness, as you've talked about? Yes, that's a, that's a tough question to answer. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, I had one thought in, in my head that I want to get out, which is not exactly the answer to the last part of your question, but um, I did not start off as a public opinion researcher. I, and I, my work uh, as an assistant professor and as a graduate student was on um, earning, actual earnings and, and wage inequality. Um, and I became interested in public opinion because I just thought it was the only vehicle or tool that we had to understand what the public knew about an issue. You know, at that time, it was, this was the late 90s, early 2000s. And there really was a big question, how much do people know about the trend in rising inequality, which started in in 1980, roughly, late 1970s. Um, so I turned to public opinion data, and I, you know, it's partly why I'm finally, you know, 20 years later, able to create, to put new questions on these major surveys, because the surveys want to ask the same question over and over again in order to get consistency, because there's so much measurement error in public opinion data. You know, so the, so I'm saying this because there's there are a lot of problems with public opinion data, but yet. I think it's one of our only uh, sources of information about the way people think in a generalizable way. I think qualitative work is really important too, but we need to make it generalizable. Um, so having said that, um, there's a lot of misuse of public opinion data by politicians. Um, I think some of the most fascinating work that's being done right now in, in the US, but I think it's happening in other countries too, is uh, research on politicians and how much they know, right? So it's changing the, the spotlight. It's not on how much uh, do you, does the general public know, but how much do politicians know about the political views and policy preferences of their constituents? You know, and a lot of that, um, you know, there are just a few papers um, that have been out. Uh, Alexander Hertel Fernandez, I think, has been doing a lot of really great work in this area, and David Goodman, um, that show that the bias is in a conservative direction of politicians, conservatively biased, uh, in a conservative way, biased um, in their interpretation of their constituents' beliefs. So, you know, on the other hand, there are a lot of uh, politicians who are doing polling. You know, they have their own polling apparatus. 
and um, and they are, you know, some academics I know are involved in some of those uh, efforts, and I think those, you know, I think the politicians who are who are doing this work and really trying to change the political process, they know what the popular views are, and that's why they're trying a different approach to uh, politics. It's much more of a grassroots approach. It's trying to meet people where they're at. Um, I'm kind of all over the place in my answer to your question, but um, I, I, I still think it's just a real challenge that people are working out in kind of the day-to-day -day political realm. I think journalists, as blessing I'll say, journalists are very much, you know, sometimes they cast it as, oh, what a surprise. Most Americans support unions. Even if you go back and look at the academic literature, you'll see that it's much higher. Than, you know, by that um, interpretation or, um, you know, I, I guess, um, kind of slant that's used in, in that sort of reporting, you'd think that no one supported unions before. So part of it is just that, that there's a lot of um, present, you know, uh, it's, it's all about the present day and, and not much long-term thinking, kind of short-term, the short-term approach to politics rather than a longer-term approach. I, I'll be curious um, to hear um, more. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'd like to get in a few more, so okay. I'll, okay. if I can. Um, Great. So when he's been working for a bit here, yes, yes, and then there's a question over here. So we'll try and get those two in. I'll try to be shorter in my answers. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Jonathan. Uh, I'm a, stu a student here at LSE doing a master's in inequality and social science. So I found this really interesting, and we've read some of your papers. Uh, and I'm also involved in grassroots housing activism. So the question I had was actually on this graph on the right that is, um, you know, particularly with Republicans, but in general with the American public, right? They are very keen on, as you say, you know, private enterprise being responsible for addressing inequality. But as you touched on in an earlier slide, the only way that can really happen is through workers coming together, it is organizing, it is quote unquote trade unions. So I'm really curious, are not trade unions and private enterprise really the same thing here? And does that not reveal that, that people actually don't really get trade unions or it, or it reveals something about, about what people think they are? Because um, I think it's a very interesting disparity. Uh, yes. Um, you know, some people have done surveys that ask about, like they'll use language like worker associations or, I, as I mentioned before, worker representation on boards. and. Uh, those are always very popular um, with the public and consistently so. I mean, whenever I say something is popular, it's because I've looked at trends over time and not looked at just sort of a one-shot one. Um, but I would say there's very little discussion in, in the popular press and politicians. Very few talk about unions. Um, and that's kind of where the supply side, the political structure, really makes a difference. Um, Oprah, uh, Biden, actually started talking about unions probably more than any other prior Democratic president in the past 30 years. Um, and Carter, Democrat in the late 70s, was responsible for um, not passing what the labor union movement, which was much stronger at that point, wanted stronger uh, protections for unionizing and against employer sabotage in you know, Democrats have not, in other words, been friends of trade unions. Um, and, uh, 
you know, it certainly wasn't a priority for Barack Obama or for, or for uh, Bill Clinton either. Uh, but Biden has been very vocal about his support for these jobs and the infrastructure bill has been. Uh, actually, all of the bills that he's proposed, he has said, the details are murky, he said that he wants these to be high wage, you know, if not actually unionized, then equivalent to union jobs. Hi, my name is Giorgio. I, I, I live here in the UK from 22 years, but from my accent, you can tell I'm Italian originally. Uh, I had two, thank you for the presentation, many great insights. I, mean, I had two surprises. One was the almost inverse correlation between inequality in the market or in the country and what people are actually saying that there is not an issue in inequality. So I don't know if you have done any further insights or you have any further, you can give any further color about this difference between market between countries and then the second is that i i know that in america there is a long history of philanthropy and uh, you know very rich people giving back uh, but it doesn't come across as one of the main uh, main uh, factors or main, main expectation from people and i was wondering what is that a surprise to you or is actually what you would have expected I, yes, those are, uh, let me take the, the last one first, um, because I'm looking here at this. Uh, so you, you mean so like charities, for example, right? Um, I, I didn't think it would be a lot. I didn't realize it would be so low. Um, and uh, let me just say that when we fielded this in the 2015 test, we had more control, obviously, because we were fielding we were designing the survey. So we randomized all of these options, except for the last one. That, no that there would be no inequality reduction. That always came as the last option, but all the other ones were randomized. So it also is pre-COVID. That might be one reason why you have, like here you have, it's actually the modal category in 2015. Um, so no, just to take your, I, I, it was a little bit, I didn't think it would be a lot, but, or the most, but I didn't think it would be so, so small, but it certainly is something that people often say. Well, Americans uh, are private givers, you know, so they don't believe in the government. You know, and then there's the foundations, there's Gates and Soros and, um, and Buffett, and, right? Um, so uh, on the first question, um, I, there's a very large literature on it, and I, I have worked mainly on this relationship between actual levels of inequality and support. Um, and I've worked on it a little bit uh, mainly in the U.S., so there's a large kind of comparative cross-national literature on this. And if I were to summarize it, I would say, you know, some, some studies find that there is a correlation. Um, some, you know, higher, uh, uh, I mean, this is going to sound kind of silly. Higher levels of inequality do correlate with higher concerns about inequality. But as soon as I say that, you can see the holes in that finding, right? So a lot of people uh, also find the opposite. Um, and the reason is because there are, uh, because the welfare state and, and political processes um, and discourses shape the way people view how much inequality uh, is legitimate and how much is, is illegitimate, which then breaks that relationship between the level of inequality and um, the support uh, for inequality. Um, what's interesting, in the, I think, in the US case on that point is that um, it's not as if there's a lot of you know, discussion in, in the U.S. about corporations becoming more equal. 
there, you know, I've done some of the media analysis to show that there's a lot more criticism of the rich and of corporations than you would expect and a lot of negative coverage of inequality. But, you know, it's not as if these results can be the result, can be a consequence of there being a lot of discussion about how high market inequality is and therefore how that private companies should be responsible. So um, this is sort of taking place in an environment in which it's sort of the opposite, that private companies are, are, um, are uh, celebrated. Um, but I, there are, there's other data that I've looked at in the US um, and other people have looked at it in other countries that show that uh, Americans have long thought that executives make too much money, like way too much money <laughs> um, relative to what they think they make. Uh, so there, there has been evidence, you know, when working class people make less than they should. Um, and there's been this kind of evidence around for a long time, but, but as I said, not uh, any questions that ask explicitly, like should inequality be reduced in these, in these uh, institutions? Um, so it, it is complicated because it's affected by political discourses in history. Um, you know, the, the U.S., you know, it has a history of creating greater equality also through uh, growth, like high levels of economic growth that was equitably distributed in the 50s and the 60s. Um, and so it, you know, it just has not had a discourse of using the welfare state primarily for creating greater equality. So the, I think the historical concept, context also really matters. We are out of time now, okay. but we can carry on uh, the conversation in the informal um, environment outside where we have a reception. So please do uh, join us for the reception. It's for people here. Uh, you should be able to find outside. And it just remains for me to thank Lizzie very much for a fantastic talk. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.